All right, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to make it all the way through chapter 8. We had, uh, I don't know how many weeks, four, at least four weeks in chapter 7, but chapter 8 will go quicker. Um, sometimes as we read through scripture, we are readily reminded that it is written in specific contexts. And some of those contexts are very different than the ones that we find ourselves in. And so it is today as we considered food offered to idols and whether or not Christians should eat and partake in food that is offered to idols. I don't know if you've ever stayed up late at night wondering that, but it's where we're at today. Um, but we do believe that Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for all people in all times. That God is a God who does speak and reveals himself in part through and, and mainly through written words. And he, his words are living and active, powerful and effective. And so sometimes what that means when we get to a passage like the one today is that we have to look for larger timeless principles. What is the, the, the principle here that is being um, communicated that, that is that we can apply then to our situation. And really, it's not that hard to see this in the passage before us today. Um, so we're going to start at verse 1 and get the topic introduced to us. 1 Corinthians 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. So, as you may be aware, this letter by the Apostle Paul is written to a church in the city of Corinth, and the city of Corinth has lots of temples in it. The city of Corinth has many, many temples to many, many different gods. Um, and at these temples, there are sacrifices of animals to these gods. Now, when they sacrificed an animal, they, they wouldn't use all of it for the sacrifice. Some of it was left over and could be used, uh, could be eaten. And they would use it for meals. They would sometimes sell some of the meat in the marketplace. And so when you went to buy meat, sometimes that came from these sacrifices. Furthermore, the temple was a very popular place to be. Um, it wasn't only a religious center. It was also kind of a community center. Um, people would go there for private parties and for state functions and this would hang out there. This is a regular part of life in the city. It's where people were. But what did this mean for the Christians? For Christians who, notably, did not worship all of these gods, but only one god. This was one of the questions that the Corinthians had brought up to Paul in their letter to, to him. And as we go on through this section, you'll see that Paul um, likely is quoting some of the Corinthians' letter. So in some of your translations, you might have parentheses around some of this. That's because um, many translators think that Paul is quoting things that they have said in their letter to him. And so the question that they bring seems to be something like this. Of course, worshiping idols is wrong. Christians should not worship idols. There is only one God. But since there is really only one God and idols are not real, they have no existence, is there really any problem then with going to meals at the temple, parties at the temple, eating meat that comes from the temple. Because these gods aren't real. There's no real realness to them. They're not alive. They don't speak. 
And so this is the overall topic that Paul is going to address from chapters 8 through chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he gives a clear answer. In chapter 10, he makes it clear that believers should not be participating in these worship events, anything that is strictly like religious in nature, worshiping an idol at the temple. Uh, because the worship of idols, even though they are unreal, he says is demonic. Have nothing to do with that. God is a jealous God and he wants your undivided devotion. So that answer comes in a couple chapters. We're not going to make it to chapter 10 today. However, here in chapter 8, Paul takes a different approach and he addresses a concern raised by the way that they ask their question. So he kind of peers behind what they ask and instead of just jumping right in and giving an answer, he says, well, there's actually a bigger issue here that we need to talk about or another issue. So look at the first three verses. I'll, I'll start at the beginning again. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul has a pastoral heart here. And he's not only concerned with just giving a quick answer, but he, he sees that there's some other issues going on in Corinth. And one of those is the prideful and unloving way that knowledge, even correct knowledge, correct theological biblical knowledge was being used. He sees that those with correct knowledge were using that knowledge something like a weapon to tear down others, to puff themselves up. So he says, quoting them, likely, all of us possess knowledge. And the knowledge that they, that some of them at least have here, is that idols are nothing. And so eating food that has been offered to idols is not inherently wrong. Um, you can perhaps think of a silly example for some, perhaps somebody offered you a candy bar, but before they offered it to you, first thanks, thanked the nymphs who live in the cacao tree for giving you this gift of chocolate. Now, there are no nymphs who live in the cacao tree, and so we don't have to necessarily think that chocolate is inherently wrong, and we could partake. Thus far, Paul essentially agrees with them. You're right. There, is no, there are no idols. They are not real. But even though many of them are right on this, they are using this knowledge in a way that is harmful, that does not build up, but tears down. And we see three ways that they are doing this. First, they are puffing themselves up with their knowledge. Um, perhaps you, you know the type. Somebody is, who is perhaps very smart, very gifted, very talented, and wants to make sure that you know that they are very smart and gifted and talented. Perhaps they're always saying things like, well, actually, well, actually, perhaps you tend to be one of these people. And just because we are talking about the knowledge of God, of theology, of things that are actually really important to get right, doesn't mean there is no danger for pride in that. Perhaps this is even more so the case. Second, 
their prideful knowledge was keeping them from loving others. The pride that they were taking in being right was keeping them from loving others. Um, now, this section dovetails really well with 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter in the same book, uh, especially verse 2, where Paul says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, so I'm really smart. I've got all of this knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so the question we must ask ourselves is not simply, am I right? That's an important question. We're not talking about like a postmodern, undefined, mushy view of truth here where it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you just feel like you're loving people. But we also must ask ourselves, am I using my knowledge to build up and love others? Or am I just trying to show others what I know, trying to feel better about myself, put others down. And this is something that we, in the type of church that we are, that loves and, and highly prioritizes study of the Bible, of theology, and growing in, in knowledge this is something that we need to probably think long and hard about. How do we use that knowledge? Might we sometimes approach Bible studies and small groups and teaching opportunities to, to puff ourselves up or to prove others wrong, merely to impart to the world our great knowledge and understanding rather than to love others? Um, there's a great quote by the 20th century British uh, pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, that I have in my Bible here. He, he, say, he says, to love to preach, and you could put in there to teach or to share or to, to enlighten. To love to do that is one thing, but to love those to whom we preach is quite another. We can love our abilities and our knowledge and our giftings, and we can feel very special and confident in being able to use those things. But do we miss actually using them to love? Or is it just about us feeling good about ourselves? And then thirdly, in taking pride in their knowledge, the Corinthians were becoming blind to reality. Now, verse 3 is, is quite interesting, if you think about it. I'll read it again. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. It's an interesting fact that when we think we have a lot of knowledge, when we think we know basically everything we need to know, we are, in a sense, the most devoid of real knowledge and deluded than we ever are, right? Because we become overconfident, over-certain that we see things correctly. We, we have 20-20 vision of things, perfectly clear. And in doing that, we actually become blind to reality. Right, this brings to mind the, the, the proverb, the well-known proverb, pride goes before destruction. 
and a haughty spirit before a fall. And surely all of us have thought at one time or another, yes, but. Like, well, not in this case, not for me. Like, no, in this, in this area, I actually have a right to be prideful. I, I really do know a lot. I really am gifted. I really am skilled. No. Pride is always illogical. Pride is always illogical in light of who God is and who we are. It, it doesn't make sense. It, it is thinking too highly of ourselves, trusting in ourselves too much. It's not, about whether, it's not just about whether or not we have knowledge or skills or abilities or power. It's about trusting in and overestimating ourselves and our abilities and our knowledge. A better pursuit, as Paul says in in verse 3 there, is to love God and to be known by God. Better than amassing all of the knowledge in the world is to love and be known by God. Which involves knowledge, it is true. Knowledge of God is important. Knowledge of who he is and how he works and his promises and his ways is important. But simply having all, even that important knowledge, without love, is nothing. So for us, especially as a church, let us not neglect love, either of God or of others, as we pursue knowledge. Let us not neglect our hearts and affections as we engage our minds. So with that opening, Paul then begins to address their question a little more directly. So verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and then here some of your translations have quotations. This is probably quotes from their letter. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, idols, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and through whom we exist. So in essence, this is just an extended agreement with them on this one point. There is really only one God. An idol has no real existence. They are nothing. They are powerless. Food offered to an idol is not inherently contaminated because the idol is nothing. Every idol that people worship then, today, physical or idols of our heart, things that we give ourselves to, are lifeless, powerless. They're not alive. They're empty. There is only one God. And and note that Paul takes this opportunity to, to mention that Jesus is God, that God is a trinity. He says, one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and this doctrine of the Trinity is, is foundational to the Christian faith and to the gospel of Jesus coming into the earth and dying for our sins. 
And thus, it is actually very important to, to note here that idol worship, it is not idol worship to worship Jesus. Right? It'd be kind of ironic if, if Paul was talking about, about idol worship here, but then he was like, yeah, but Jesus is not God. No, Jesus is God. So this is very pertinent to the point he is making here. And yet, even such foundational knowledge can be misused, can be used in unloving and prideful ways. And so Paul continues, however, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge, that is the knowledge that idols are nothing, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Spiritually thinking, uh, thinking before God. So understand the situation here. There are some who have, quote-unquote, knowledge that idols are nothing and that eating food that has been offered to an idol is not inherently wrong. And this group would say, we are free. We have a right. We have a right to eat. And they're right. Theologically, they are right. And yet Paul says that some due to past experiences attending these meals at the pagan temples and worshiping idols, aren't able to eat this food or engage in these things as meaningless. Their consciences are weak in that their moral compass still considers such things as worshiping an idol. They, they can't do it freely in good conscience, in faith as to God, and so for them, it is sin. Um. Theologian Gordon Fee gives a helpful explanation of, of what's going on here. He says, even though all may believe at the theoretical level, so in their minds, that an idol is no God, not all share this knowledge at the experiential, emotional level. They may tell their heads all they want, that the God is only an idol, and that an idol has no genuine reality. The fact is that their former way of life is so woven into their consciousness and emotions in such a way that the old associations cannot be thus lightly disregarded. For them to return to the place of their former worship would mean once more to eat, as though it were truly being sacrificed to the God. And so what's the solution? What does Paul advise them to do in this situation? Verse 9, and we'll read to the end of the chapter here. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother or sister for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So here you get the principle, right? Fairly well-known principle. We, we use this phrase today, stumbling block. And the principle is this. There are things 
that we are free to do, that we have a right to do, that we can do in good conscience and perhaps do to the glory of God, but that we should not do out of love for others. Or to put it another way, simply because we are free to do something and have a right to do something does not mean that we should do it. There may be other considerations. Namely, if clinging to our rights and freedoms would tempt someone to sin or would simply be unloving, then we should be willing to forfeit our rights and freedoms. When my rights bump up against serving one another, serving a brother and a sister, serving our brother and sister should win out over our rights. Now, it's helpful to, to note that this is not simply about, and this is not about, offending others. And this is not about times that where others might disagree with you. There are times when you will and perhaps should do and say things that are offensive. And you can do that in a loving way. There are certainly times when you should disagree with others and even correct others, and you can do that in a loving way. But this is about being willing in the phrase that Paul says later, to be all things to all people. Sacrificing ourselves and our desires and our rights and our freedoms to build others up. Now, it helps to put some tangible examples or applications to this. So what might this look like today? I, as I said, I assume most of you aren't staying up late at night wondering about if you can eat food offered to idols. The application that's most commonly brought up in this stumbling block principle is alcohol. And I do think it's a, it's a, a good and right application of this principle. So are you as a Christian, if you are a Christian, free to drink alcohol? Yes. Will alcohol commend you to God or keep you from God? No, not, not necessarily. But that shouldn't be the end of our consideration. Another question is, will my freedom and right to drink tempt anyone for whom alcohol is not meaningless, but is, in fact, a temptation to sin? And the thing about this is no one can really answer that for you. It depends on the people around you, the situations you're in. It depends on you knowing the people around you and the situations they're in and what would be loving to them. Another similar application could be eating food or certain kinds of food. Was, will my eating habits be a stumbling block to someone else for whom such eating is a temptation? And so could we change our habits to love our brother or sister? I think there's application for the movies and shows we watch. Perhaps we can watch certain things and they are harmless for us. But for others, they're not. Even perhaps for our spouse or our kids. And we could actually even apply this to the various idols that we face today. 
uh, we are not a, a, a culture that is devoid of idols. We just don't think our idols are religious in nature. But they are. We, we worship things like sports and politics and money and sex and consumption and shopping. And could it be that there are people who have lived for such things as functional gods before coming to Christ? That was their God. That's what they gave all of their time and attention and, and worries and money to. And perhaps even after coming to Christ, they still carry some associations of what is really idolatry. And for the rest of us, we may be free to engage in these, certain, in these things to a certain degree, but might our engagement or the level of our engagement encourage them to enter back into what can only be idolatry? And if I could offer one more application that pertains to gathering with the church. What if the knowledge that we have is that church is not a building, church is not a, a service, church is not an event, but a people. That's true. Plus, we know that we are saved by grace, not by our performance, and so we know that we have the freedom to not gather with the church, whether on Sundays, in various ways. Our salvation doesn't depend on it. We certainly don't want to become legalistic, right? But what if our questions didn't stop with, what am I free to do, but what would be most loving and build up others? Would others be encouraged by my gathering with the church? If I regularly neglected to gather with the church and perhaps had a right to do so, could this be a temptation for others to do the same, yet in a sinful way? And what about unbelievers and new believers who are watching for, for whom there were many other things previously that were more important than gathering with believers, sports, recreation, whatever. And when they see that Christians do much the same, they're tempted to continue on as normal. Again, only you can answer this for yourself. And I don't mean to say that there are no good reasons for not gathering with the church from time to time or a small group or whatever. But we should ask ourselves, what is most loving? Is that a question that weighs into our decision making? Now, it is obvious that this principle can be taken too far and has been many times. And so in many times and places, churches have made rules to make sure that no one ever tempts anyone else to any sin. No dancing, no card games, no movies, no alcohol were the big ones. All of these precautionary boundaries, boundaries are set up to make sure that no one tempts anyone else to any sin which in reality just changes the types of sin that we are tempted to. And it creates a very legalistic and prideful people, the very thing which this passage is seeking to guard against. So we shouldn't go out and make rules about everything. 
Just because you, in a situation, feel that this would be the most loving thing to do, restraining from this or that or whatever, doesn't mean you need to petition for a rule for everyone to do the same in every situation. But it does help to have principles. And the principle here is what would be most loving? What would be kind and considerate and work to build up others? Even when it means sacrificing our rights and our freedoms. And we are not a country that loves to sacrifice rights and freedoms, if you weren't aware. Uh, it doesn't really matter where on the political spectrum you are. Uh, we are a country currently that loves to make much of and insist on our rights and freedoms. And I do think there's a place to stand up for human rights and freedoms while still sacrificing our own rights and freedoms for others. But as Christians, we should be known for being willing to give up our rights and freedoms for love, for the love of others. This doesn't make much sense in our world, but it does make sense in light of the gospel. It does make sense in light of who God is and what he's done for us. Jesus did not hold on to his rights and freedoms, but willingly forfeited them out of love for us. Right? That's at the heart of the gospel. Jesus did not hold on to his rights and freedoms, but forfeited them out of love for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It, I admit it can be easy to read through that and not really think much about it. But that is astounding. This should astound us. God had a right to stay at a distance from us. To leave us in our sin, to leave us to our own devices and their consequences. We had rebelled against him, and he was under, under no necessity to pursue us. Under no necessity to humble himself and painfully sacrifice himself. He could have just said, oh, they're not really worth it. I have better things to do with my time. But he chose to become a servant, humbling himself to the point of death. And we are called to have the same mind, to do likewise. Our creator God is an example of humble and lowly self-giving. How incredible is that? Like of all the things that we look to God to be, how incredible that he is an example to us of humble, lowly self-giving. But he's more than that. He's more than just an example. Um, and, and we need more than an example. We need a savior. We need more than just a, a path to follow. We need a radical heart change inside. And that's what Jesus does when we embrace him by faith. This call to live like this is not a call to do what is impossible in our own strength. 
It is a call to be so satisfied and content and joyful in Christ and Him crucified for us and dependent on His Spirit inside of us that we live in a way that we would never live on our own apart from Him. The strength to do this, to fight, to live like this is in Christ and His Spirit in us. And let me just end by saying this. There are a lot of needs in this church. You don't know all of them. I don't know all of them. Um, I can tell you that this past few weeks has been pretty heavy with a lot of heavy, significant things within this body. And being in a position to enter in and care for and serve others in their needs. And to do this requires that we first simply be present in one another's lives. It requires that we be honest about ourselves, at least with some, and our needs. And as we pursue and engage one another, and as we are open about ourselves and our own needs and struggles, we will have opportunities to enter in and to, to build others up and to give up our rights and our time and our freedoms to serve others. And the church will be built up and God will be glorified. And we will be a distinct, invisible witness to the presence of God among us. We're going to take communion now. And today I just want to highlight the, the horizontal unity, union, that we celebrate in communion. Of course, communion directs us vertically to Christ and what he's done for us, but it also connects us horizontally to one another, that we are united and come together in Christ, that our identity rests ultimately in him, that we have no room to brag or boast or to puff ourselves up because our hope and identity and comfort is in him. We all alike confess him as Lord and Savior. So let's do that today. So we come from different places in life, feeling many different things. Let's come to this, confessing Jesus, and, but remembering that we are doing this together and that we are in this together and called to love each other in this. Let's pray.